The Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show, episode number 50. Welcome to the show where we help you make smart nutrition simple so that you can fuel your best with less. Less time, less money, and less stress. I'm Ben Brown, co-founder and CEO of BSL Nutrition, and I'm excited to have you join me on this journey. Each week, I'll be sharing expert advice from leaders in the field of nutrition, fitness, lifestyle, and supplementation who actually practice what they preach and are also on a mission to positively impact as many people as possible in a meaningful way. Today's episode is brought to you by my nutrition company, BSL Nutrition, and our all-in-one training drink called Complete Essentials. When you use the Complete Essentials, you'll no longer need pre-, during-, and post-workout supplements. You can save time, money, and energy, and get all the beneficial nutrients you need in one delicious, easy-to-mix drink. Make sure you guys stay tuned after the show where I'll share a nice little discount for all of our listeners on your first product purchase. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to episode number 50 of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. I'm your host, Ben Brown, co-founder and CEO of BSLNutrition.com. Today on the show, very special guest, Dr. Brad Dieter. Brad is a trained exercise physiologist, molecular biologist, and biostatistician. He received his BA from Washington State University, a master's in science and biomechanics at the University of Idaho, and his PhD at the University of Idaho. He completed his postdoctoral fellowship in translational science at Providence Medical Research Center, Providence Sacred Heart Medical Center, and Children's Hospital, where he studied how metabolism and inflammation regulate molecular mechanisms disease and is involved in discovering novel therapeutics for diabetic complications. So basically, he's a really smart dude. He is currently a research scientist at the Providence Medical Research Center, a co-owner of Eat to Perform, and sits on several scientific advisory boards. In addition to all of this, both his lab and his biostatistics work, Dr. Dieter is the CSO, Chief Scientific Officer, at his company Eat to Perform, and is passionate about scientific outreach and educating the public through his role in scientific advisory boards and regular articles on health, nutrition, supplementation on his website, and uh, his website is sciencedrivennutrition.com, and his other business is eattoperform.com. You guys are going to love this episode. Uh, we definitely dive deep into some scientific aspects, but how they relate to overall weight loss, both physical activity for weight loss, nutrition for weight loss, total caloric intake, metabolism, this whole set point theory, and why people may gain, lose, regain uh, kind of that same amount of weight and how much uh, value there is in that theory. And then we touch on a couple fun things, just his scientific input on intermittent fasting and uh, the ketogenic diet. You guys are definitely going to enjoy, and uh, I will catch you on the inside. Dr. Brad Dieter, thanks so much for coming on the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. How are you, brother? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. It's really a pleasure having you on. I love having individuals that are really rooted in academia come on and not myth bust, but just kind of maybe poke some holes into some of the things that are happening in nutrition and fitness and supplementation because there's so much out there. There's so many different thought processes out there and, and so much dogma, if you will. And so I'd love to just jump into some of this stuff and, and get your perspective on it. What, you know, what the research says on certain things, what your opinion on certain things are, because that matters and, and kind of what you've seen from an anecdotal uh, standpoint that maybe even the research isn't supporting just based on your experience. And so 
uh, I'm super excited to, uh, to dive in. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. With that said, uh, maybe just a, a quick synopsis. As I said um, in the intro, you know, you're a, a PhD researcher. What does that look like? How did you get into that? Yeah. So uh, maybe I'll start at, start at the very beginning and tell you how I got here. So I kind of all grown up, I wanted, thought I wanted to go into medicine, be a clinician, kind of go into to, you know, surgery, that area. Um, as my life, career, personality progressed, I realized that wasn't really where I wanted my life to go and where a lot of my skill sets and kind of my personality were pushing me. So I ended up, um, after undergrad, I ended up going into graduate school for more of the research route. Um, so I did a master's, uh, was basically in exercise physiology, and my my area of focus there was more in biomechanics. Um, so I did a lot of work with musculoskeletal mechanics, um, you know, EMG, so like muscle yeah. signaling, things like that. And I um, did a lot of human work in my master's and then got really interested in more of the metabolism, molecular biology, mm-hmm. kind of what's the the really underlying root cause of disease. So my, my PhD work was actually focused on kind of the intersection of nutrition and exercise and disease mm-hmm. and how they differentially regulate the molecular mechanisms of disease. And so that was what my PhD work focused on. And then I did my, my fellowship um, in a little bit more targeted area where I looked at more of metabolism and, and diabetic kidney disease and a lot of those pieces. Um, and now I'm, I've stayed in that field and do a lot of my work, um, my professional work geared in, in diabetes and in organ complications and kind of all along the way in parallel, I've been pretty involved more in the industry side, working with people, you know, building um, a couple companies along the side of, you know, the mm-hmm. research and the work so I can kind of keep my feet in, in both worlds. Yeah, that's cool. And like I said, one of the things that I respect about you, because you are rooted in academia, you're obviously doing research on a daily basis, but you're also doing the coaching. And so you're seeing mm-hmm. the implications of a lot of this stuff on a day-to-day basis with your clients and, and your company's called Eat to Perform. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, I run that with my partner, Paul, and um, yeah, we, we work with you know, thousands of people a month. And we, it's one of the really cool things is we get to take some of the ideas that you know, circulate that nobody's able to test um, and actually test them in fairly large scales in people in real time. Could you give me an example? Yeah. So, you know, whenever new ideas come up, you know, whether it's in the scientific literature or, you know, somebody comes up with some idea, you know, of carbohydrate manipulation, mm-hmm. looking at protein, looking at rest, you know, people have this idea of how much does walking and physical activity make in people's, you know, dieting cycles. We've been able to really test all those ideas um, in, in large amounts of people over pretty short time windows. So we've really started to learn a lot of, you know, in the real world scenario, how much weight do all of these different scientific ideas actually start to pin down on people's, you know, whether they're successful or not in their kind of their weight loss cycles or, you know, whatever other aspect they're going after. That's cool. Yeah. So I definitely want to dive into some of that stuff, but I want to preface those things because I'd love to hear what you're seeing um, with your clients. But uh, I want to preface it with uh, one of the papers that you, or one of the the articles you just published on your website on the set point theory. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the set point theory and how it pertains, like how we should be from a, from just a lay person standpoint, is it relevant to be thinking about it? What is it? Maybe you could just give us a, you know, 
give us an idea of what is the set point theory and is it relevant to us? Yeah, so this is something I've been thinking a lot about over the last several years, and I'll preface it by saying I haven't completely figured it all out, but kind of where I'm, I'm coming at it is, you know, the set point theory is this idea of we all have a certain weight, um, yeah. and it's maintained, and you can't lose weight or gain weight because your body has all these mechanisms to adapt and kind of hold you in this, this narrow band of a weight, right? So a lot of people, you know, anecdotally will weigh a certain weight for 10 yeah. or 20 years. Um, and set point theory is kind of the idea of there's all these internal and external things that kind of keep you mm-hmm. in this, this band of weight. Um, and so in that article, I kind of talk about, you know, from the scientific perspective, we've really looked at a lot of these things and there are aspects of human physiology that kind of maintains levels of body fatness that maintains energy balance. Um, and that ends up kind of controlling weight over long periods of time. Um, but what, appears to be really happening underlying all that is those mechanisms are very sensitive to either really big stimulus um, or very long-term stimulus. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you, if you have two weeks of eating, you know, several thousand calories on top of whatever maintenance is, your body can't adapt to that, right? You can't increase thermogenesis. You can't increase enough physical activity enough and your body will gain body fat, body weight, and you'll be in an energy surplus. Um, on the converse side, if you have, you know, these small changes over very long periods of time, those also start to add up. Um, and you know, so there's kind of this magnitude of the stimulus or length of the stimulus can really overpower those adaptive mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other one that was really key that a lot of people don't think about is, the set point piece and how it maintains, you know, energy balance and body fatness doesn't really account for what we'll call the, the normal adaptations to stimuli. So if you think about, you know, when you're a teenager versus when you're a full grown adult, the amount of stimulus your body's had to adapt, like if you've been weightlifting for 20 years, just your bone tissue has gotten denser, Um, your muscle mass has grown. And that's, that's a much different adaptation than somebody who's been sedentary for 30 years and had an energy surplus. So you also have to think about the type of stimulus your body's been given and why that weight change, you know, is occurring over a long period of time. Yeah. So the, the kind of summary I have is, you know, it's, there are these mechanisms there, but they don't really dictate your future. Um, and they can be very easily, I don't want to say very easily, but they can be overpowered by, the type of stimuli, the magnitude of the stimuli, and the length of the stimuli that you, you give somebody. So that can be either, you know, massive caloric reduction, massive increases in energy expenditure, um, you know, pretty focused resistance training, even over fairly short periods of time. Those can all overpower these mechanisms to try to mitigate changes in energy balance and fat mass. Sure. So, so let me see if I can... I, if I can summarize that or at least uh, give you my thought process as you're explaining that especially regarding the stimulus uh, or the higher levels of stimulus and i think about it in two different ways is is while we may have a sort of predetermined body weight is the things that we expose ourselves to on a daily weekly monthly annual basis can overpower those right so even though our body wants to stay at 175 pounds uh, when we, it's 
the two weeks before Christmas and New Year's, right? We are eating uh, typically a lot more than we're used to eating, and therefore we put on uh, adipose and fat tissue, right? Also, so that would be a short-term kind of high-intensity stimulus, and also would be an, another example would be over a long period of time, right? which a lot of people experience is just slowly gaining weight over time because they're adding a little more stimulus in terms of calories likely or reduction in physical activity than what they need. And therefore, they're slowly putting on time right over an extended period of time. And so what are some of the typical adaptive mechanisms in place that our body normally would use that we're overpowering. I'm assuming you're talking about things like leptin, um, like, uh, like NEAT, right? Maybe you could explain um, NEAT just a little bit and how it influences this, this set point. Yeah, so you've, your body has all these different ways to regulate it, right? Some of them are hormonal-based. So the, the hormone leptin, right, which is, it kind of works like a thermostat. Um, mm-hmm. And so let's say you've got a, a set body fat percentage and as it goes up, you produce more leptin, which kind of tells your body eat less and move around more. Um, as your body fat goes down, you produce less leptin and your, you know, it tells you to move a little bit more um, or move a little bit less and eat a little bit more. Right. So that's one piece that dictates it. You know, another one that's tied into that is this idea of non-exercise activity. Um, and so this is kind of the drive to just be active and move around. Um, and typically what we see is when you start to accumulate a little more body fat tissue or you, you've really increased your energy intake, you know, people are more likely to move around and, and burn off that extra activity. Um, there's just, there's a lot of other ones, but those we can kind of use those as, as proxies. Sure. And what's really interesting about those is, the modern environment kind of offsets those mechanisms, right? So let's say you have, you know, you've started to increase your food intake, but you live in such an environment where your ability to be spontaneously active is diminished, right? Because how often in your structured day do you have the opportunity to just be like, oh, I feel like going and walking around and you know moving around more. I'm going to because I have that urge. And you kind of get into this system, this cultural system of, your body and your psychology doesn't allow you to adapt the way it's designed to. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so how else would this model change or would you think about it in terms of like, instead of talking about weight, what if we're talking about body fat versus like weight from someone who has more body fat, I guess we can say just body composition, someone who has more body fat versus someone who has more lean muscle tissue as adipose tissue increases you know a lot of these regulatory mechanisms start to really break down um and the way i view it is you know within a certain amount of body fat a lot of these things will work and correct themselves somebody's body fat will fluctuate you know four or five percent and you'll kind of visibly notice they go back and forth a little bit but they never get big swings um but a lot of people who uh go you know, to, to fairly high ends end up staying there, right? Yeah. Um, so it appears that, you know, in things like uh, leptin resistance and things like that, that start to happen at these higher levels of body fat, you know, they, these mechanisms that help maintain body fatness at a normal range start to break down. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
if you take somebody who's at a, a weight of, let's say, 200 pounds and their body fat is 40%, the way that they maintain their leanness and their body fat percentage and the mechanisms that do that are substantially different than somebody who weighs 200 pounds and has 10% body fat. And a lot of that has to do with just the state of hormonal signaling, um, you know, how a lot of these mechanisms that work, are they functional or are they dysfunctional? And body fat percentage appears to play a very large role in mediating whether those signals work or not. Yeah. So how does uh, our resting metabolic rate influence uh, these swings and, and overall our ability to lose weight and keep it off? Yeah, you know, resting metabolic rate, we know that when you when your body weight goes up, your resting metabolic rate goes up, right? So even in obese people, they typically have a higher resting metabolic rate than, you know, non-obese people. Um, typically, that's what we see. And people who have dieted and have lost weight, their resting metabolic rate goes down. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the literature and the science, is that doesn't appear to dictate the people who maintain weight loss versus the people who have a rebound in weight loss. Um, so these changes in resting metabolic rate, while they are meaningful, they don't really appear to have substantial impacts in, you know, overall weight loss and body composition. It usually comes down to a lot of the other factors, right? Like what's your diet and nutrition like? Mm -hmm. What's your, how often do you get to the gym? What's your, you know, non-structured activity, your NEAT? So while there are these adaptations and resting metabolic rate, which are measurable, they're meaningful, um, they don't explain most of the reasons why people either rebound from weight loss or, you know, don't have substantial weight loss. Uh, and this is, you know, one of the things we see in our clients all the time is resting metabolic rate for a lot of people doesn't really appear to be a factor that changes which direction they go in terms of yeah. getting results or not getting results. A lot of people, it ends up being more of a crutch than anything. Is it something that we can correlate to like their metabolic output? Because we talk about, you know, how when people start to diet and they diet extensively or they have a, a lower caloric intake for an extended period of time to the degree that they may end up doing some quote unquote metabolic damage. Mm -hmm. Is this something that's affecting resting metabolic rate? Is it even relevant? And if not, what is it that's happening? Yeah, so this is kind of starting to get into the scientifically unknown, but anecdotally, I don't want to say known, but we, we've seen a lot of, right? So we don't have good scientific evidence to look at, you know, what happens in chronic long-term dieters and their resting metabolic rate, and how does that determine their overall, you know, long-term results. Um, but there is some hints to where we know that there's been a few studies that have looked at if you take people who have a dieting history and put them on a weight, you know, a weight loss program, calories restricted, they tend to have worse results than somebody who hasn't dieted in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and this is actually what we see in almost all of our clients that we work with is the people who come to us from, you know, a, a well-fed or overfed background have substantially better long-term results um, and even short-term results mm -hmm. than people who've come to us from a dieting perspective. Now, whether that's due to the metabolic piece, whether that's due to, you know, their thyroid issues, whether it's due to 
hormones, or maybe, you know, those people typically are not as active. They don't have a lot of whole, a lot of other things going on. Um, but those are the things we see. Um, and there is evidence to suggest that dieting when used as anything other than a short-term tool ends up not working very well. Um, and it also ends up reducing your likelihood of being successful in dieting in the future. And from what we see, at least in terms of anecdotally and with a lot of our clients is the more, we call it the nuclear bomb option, right? The more times you've gone to the well of really extreme interventions to lose weight, the less successful you are in the future. Yeah, definitely. And so based on that, because, and I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times we talk about in the industry, we talk about this thought process that, or argument over what's more important, right? When we're talking about getting someone to lose weight, right? We know, we know uh, we need to create some level of caloric deficit. And so how do we do that, right? What's most important? Is it, is it doing it through uh, restricting calories? Or is it more important in your perspective to do it from um, increasing physical activity? I mean, yes, it depends. But what are you what are you guys seeing relative to the fact that you just said you don't want to restrict calories too hard for too long? Yeah, you know, I have I have a a fairly I don't want to say biased perspective on this, but when you look at what does dieting give you versus what does exercise give you, right? And if you think about, you know, caloric restriction is a tool and it can help reduce body fat. It can kind of help improve some metabolic pieces, but the adaptations your body undergoes just from dieting are pretty minimal. And almost all of them are down regulation, right? Think about all the things that happens when you consume less food. I mean, your insulin resistance can get better. Your body fat can go down. Your inflammation can can go down, and those are all beneficial things. But that's that's from the calorie deficit, right? That's yeah. not that's not inherently from reducing food, um, for the large part. Now, when you look at the exercise piece, what happens when you start lifting weights? You increase insulin sensitivity in your muscles. You increase, you know, just the metabolic machinery in your muscles. They get bigger. They get mm-hmm. stronger your likelihood of falling if you're older goes down, your bone density goes up, um, you know, your capacity to, to be strong and be capable increases. If you encompass cardiovascular training, your cardiovascular output increases, your resting heart rate goes down, your ability to manage stress gets better, your microcirculation gets better. So all of the things that come with the benefits of exercise not only make you a more robust organism, but they also have better long-term health outcomes than simply just restricting food. Mm -hmm. So when you have one without the other, you know, you're really kind of shooting yourself in the foot in terms of the positive adaptations you can have. And right. And that's kind of why we've called our business eat to perform is, you know, the food piece is inherent in a lot of these things, but there's also the focus on the adaptation is really what we're chasing in a lot of these circumstances. Yeah. And then, and tying that right back to, and I agree hundred percent with you, but then also tying that back to those physiological mechanisms for maintaining that, you know, uh, kind of regulating your body weight and making sure that those are optimized, right? We don't want to, to mess with those too much and, and, and therefore, you know, 
by increasing physical activity to say nothing of the food, we may not be uh, messing with the, the leptin levels or, you know, we're going to naturally be reducing um, body fat levels and that's going to be beneficial in terms of hormonal function and everything like that. So I appreciate that thought process and what you're seeing with that. And so within that, how do you differentiate and how are you guys differentiating between just overall movement uh, throughout the day as well as kind of structured physical activity? I'm a very much like a, a heuristic, bring things down to principles thing and then try to think about it from there is the, the overall movement piece is really more of the calorie driver, right? I mean, when you look at your total daily energy expenditure, a large part of it is based on just that non-exercise activity. You know, that's anywhere from three or 400 calories to 2000 calories a day. And so the way I view that is the, the non-structured activity is more of your, your calorie balance driver. Mm -hmm. And then the structured exercise is chasing the adaptations you want. Okay. So if you think about it, like, why would you put someone on a resistance training program? Well, you're doing it because you want to get them stronger, increase their muscle tissue, make them more capable, all those sorts of things. Why would you put somebody on a, you know, some sort of aerobic training program? You're trying to improve their cardiovascular function. You're trying to improve their work capacity over long periods of time. You're trying to improve their recovery capacity. So I kind of view it as they are very different functions and they serve very different roles. One is more of a calorie driver. The other is a adaptation piece. Sure. And that also helps kind of, you know, guide your client over the long term. is you can give them a program and say, right now we're focusing on these adaptations and then we can later focus on these adaptations. And it kind of helps compartmentalize and have them understand the role of each piece. And so when you're talking about the non-exercise activity thermogenesis, the NEAT standpoint, um, what, can you give us an idea of exactly what that constitutes and maybe if you have any recommendations, it, I mean, does that, con is that considered like just walking daily or would that fall into our structured activity? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I view it as you've got, it's kind of a large piece, right? Is it's basically any physical activity that goes on during the day. That is not like a programmed structured piece. Um, and you know, that can be, that can be like your daily, um, walk at lunch. It can be the fact that you're taking the stairs, you're parking further away, you're standing at your desk, you're playing with your kids, you're taking the long way around the, you know, the grocery store. It encompasses all of the different pieces that just cause movement, right? Yeah. Because anytime you're moving at all, you're basically taking chemical energy and converting it into mechanical energy. And yeah. the more you can just do all those different things, all starts to really accumulate. So we try to tell people is, start engineering all the different pieces of your life to, to pull these things together. And each small piece, you know, in and of itself doesn't really do a whole lot, but cumulatively it really adds up. I like it. I, I, I like that. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about and implementing a lot more recently because of seeing, you know, the implications. And I think that a lot of us and a lot of, you know, people listening, we have this idea that if we're not going to be able to get to the gym and crank out a weight session, like what's even, you know, why even bother, mm -hmm. you know, doing anything? Like I'll just, okay, I'm going to have to skip the workout for day. It's like not going to happen because I can't get my hour of weight training. But 
what you're saying is that even if we're accumulating five minutes here and there, and even if it's walking or if it's gardening or if it's running around with the kids, it's actually making a difference from a caloric expenditure standpoint, which will contribute to weight loss or, or maintenance or something like that. Yeah. And pr- that's kind of the best way to look at it, right? Is, is each piece is kind of adding more into your account. Like I kind of view it as retirement, right? Is every five minute walk is a small investment into the larger goal of what you're trying to achieve. And if you view things like that, it starts to get really a lot easier to just chip into this, this pool. And so is the, is there like an average amount that you would recommend people like, let's say we have sedentary people. When I say sedentary, right, they're sitting most of the day and they may get up and go get maybe two or three days a week, they'll go get an hour long weight training session, which I think is, is pretty common, some sort of resistance training or a boot camp style class or something like that. But other than that, they're just sedentary, right? In and mm-hmm. out of the car, sitting at work, get home, sit around after dinner. So is there an average amount that you'd recommend for people to start to be accumulating that neat exercise? Yeah, you know, the, the best way to preface it is progress and not perfection, right? So if you're yeah. somebody who's not doing anything is, you know, getting a five minute walk in at lunch is better than nothing. You know, if you go to the nearest bathroom in your office, start going to the furthest one mm-hmm. um, and start slowly adding to those things. And a good rule of thumb, you know, kind of what the scientific guidelines are telling us is, you know, 10,000 steps a day is, is fairly impactful. Um, and if you can, you know, either use a fitness tracker or your phone or, you know, just kind of be more cognizant of trying to get to that level of activity in a day, it is, you know, pretty, pretty meaningful and impactful in terms of your overall health and and wellness. Um, and when you really kind of break that down into a given day, it's really not an insurmountable task, right? It just takes, you know, you park a little bit further away, you take the bathroom that's, you know, two floors down, you go on a five minute walk on your break in the morning, you you go on a walk at lunch. If you're on a meeting, you pace around your office, like all those little things can add up to, you know, fairly high levels of physical activity. So with respect to, right, your company, Eat to Perform, like you said, how are you recommending that people fuel themselves? Uh, I mean, I imagine the majority of your clientele are interested in weight loss. Yeah, you know, uh, a large portion of them are. Um, You know, it's very interesting is when we have clients come in, what they're focused on versus being a year in is very different. Um, you know, a lot of people find yeah. us because they're looking for, you know, they've gone through every other diet on the planet and they want to find something that's works. It's more sustainable. It's more focused. Um, and you know, so they usually end up coming, you know, wanting some sort of weight loss program. And then eventually they transition into, okay, now I want to focus on something else. And then we'll come back to the weight loss. We come back to the oh, weight loss. So, you know, we, we kind of guide people through the whole spectrum of their health and fitness journey because the, the weight loss piece for a lot of people, they view it as the end of the journey, but that's the beginning of the journey. Mm-hmm. And then what did they do after they get that result, right? Definitely. Is one of our kind of internal mottos is, you know, we're more interested in the, the after after than the after, you know, like. The, yeah. There's the great transformation most people have, but then what happens after that? You know, 
how are you feeling yourself? How's your mental health? How is your body? How are you setting up your life? What skills and tools do you have? So we kind of guide people through the whole, you know, before and after, and then the after, after, and then the after, after, after. I love it. That's a great way to think about it. And so what is it that you're doing that's different from (laughs) everyone else? We do things so differently from everybody else. It's almost hard to, to juxtapose it. You know, one of them is we, we offer personalized attention and coaching for every one of our clients. Um, you know, we, we are a large, fairly large business with, you know, thousands of clients, but each person has personal interaction with coaches. Um, you know, we focus a lot on the, the process of how people get to where they get. Um, we guide people through their fat loss programs much differently than other people. You know, if you, if you think about the typical way it's done, it's eat less, move more. And when that doesn't work, it's eat less, move more. And when that doesn't work, it's eat even less and move even more. Um, and a lot of the things we've, we've learned is for a lot of people that model breaks down and it doesn't work. Um, and so instead of, you know, when we hit these plateaus, taking people to the most aggressive route possible, you know, we've found ways to, you know, during those periods, actually have them get more food, actually have mm-hmm. them focus a little bit more on other pieces and then, you know, bringing them back into, you know, a calorie reduction and a little bit later. Um, so we've found ways to, you know, break that mold of eat less, move more to get to the result. Um, the other thing is we, we are very focused and targeted with our clients. Like we, whenever we guide people through weight loss, or fat loss programs is, it's not, Hey, you're going to lose 20 pounds or we're going to keep chipping away at the calories until you get there. It's here's the set time. We're going to be in this window. You know, you're probably going to lose, you know, X pounds to X pounds. Um, this is the goal that we're going to go for. And then once we hit this time frame in which we know your body's going to adapt, we're going to take the next step. And we kind of guide people through things that way. So we set things more of a, you know, here's each step along the way. Um, and try to keep them focused on, on those pieces. So those are some of the big things we do. You know, the other things are, you know, we've, we've built technology for people um, that were more easily accessible, right? Instead of, instead of sending your coach a Google sheet, you know, that you've manually filled right. out, you know, we, we have mobile platforms. We pull in data from as many companies as we can. Each person has their own profile. Um, and we really try to personalize the experience for all of them. And so it's not a, Hey, here's 30 days. Don't eat these foods. It's very much a, here's you, here's your journey. Here's your personal experience. Here's your personalized plan. Here's how we're going to walk you through it. You know exactly where you are in your journey. If you have any questions, we're going to answer them. Um, so that's kind of the way we view each client. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, I'm curious. So what are the ways, what are some of the ways that you've extrapolated data from your research then and implemented it into your coaching. Is there anything specific, like for example, you know, possibly like utilizing calorie cycling um, within their plan when you mentioned intuitively, I think about, you know, uh, lower exercise days, lower calories, higher exercise days, higher calories, something like that. Yeah. So some of the things we do, um, and hopefully this isn't giving away trade secrets, but, um, you know, we do all of our plans, very calories throughout the week. You know, part of it's due to the fact that whenever somebody's in a calorie deficit, 
if you can kind of vary that deficit, they'll have days where they're a little more well-fed. So they're recovering yeah. a little bit better. Their training's a little bit better. Um, you know, they're not always every day feeling like they're dieting really hard. Um, that's one of the reasons we've also, you know, a lot of the work that we did early on was we know that when you diet, your, your system down regulates, right? Your resting metabolic rate temporarily decreases. Your non-exercise activity decreases. Um, and so we actually will add food to people, right? And yeah. so when they start to adapt, we add some food back in to kind of say, okay, let's, let's slow the adaptation and then come back to this again after we've kind of worked through this piece. So those are ideas that we've taken that have been in the scientific literature, but nobody's ever tested and brought that into actual people and been able to test it and say, okay, this works. We're going to implement this until the science catches up. So those are a lot, those are some of the things um, that we've done. You know, a lot of the other pieces we've done have come from more of the sports psychology cool. literature, right? So we take a lot of, what do we know about goal setting? Yep. You know, what do we know about people's behaviors based on, you know, chasing goals versus, you know, kind of the carrot versus the stick, um, you know, marketing psychology, loss aversion versus, you know, um, gaining something. So those yeah. are all ideas we've pulled in and, and put into pieces of our program. Um, you know, just with the way we set goals for people, how big those goals are, how often we change them. So those are all pieces that we've kind of pulled from different fields of the scientific literature and really implemented them into the system that we use. Yeah, I'll stop. I'll stop grilling <laughs> you about like telling me every aspect of how you run your business. But I no, I'm happy to hear that. I mean, you know, it is there's again, there's so many different ways to do it, and ultimately, it's like we know that eat less, exercise more is not the right approach. Um, and with you know the ad nauseum number of diets on the market that obviously are not successful. We know that it's not beneficial for people to just be in a caloric deficit forever. It's just, it's, yeah. just not going to work. And so it's always good to talk to professionals, but also, again, like I said, that understand research that know how to directly apply it for people so that we can maintain a high metabolic output and, and lose weight in the most effective and sustainable way possible. So let's jump into a couple things that are on the forefront of what's going on in nutrition right now. And just, I'd love, you know, your expert opinion on them. I, I'd love to know what your thought is on intermittent fasting and, and how that's uh, benefiting people. I kind of view it in two, two well, probably three or four separate ways, but one of them is, you know, what can the science tell us to date? Um, what does it hint at and what do we have no idea about? Mm -hmm. um, and then also kind of how do you take those and hedge your bets for the best possible outcome? You know, one, the science tells us in humans, almost nothing, right? We, ha we have no long-term human data to suggest anything about long-term changes and in, in health or longevity, right? So we kind of have to just plant that flag and say, we just don't know. Um, mm -hmm. We have some hints, but those are, very minor um, and we really can't say anything about it we do know in in rodents um, in a few studies in primates and a lot of studies in, in nematodes you know worms is you know fasting appears to have some sort of longevity benefit um, now there's issues with that data right fasting in mice and worms the time windows that they do it is not equivalent to humans right some of those translate to like several days to mm -hmm. several years of fasting, which yeah. you know, nobody's going to do that. Um, the other thing is, you know, 
determining quality of life in an animal or, you know, a worm right. is much different than a human, right? Because our experience is not solely based on the x-axis, right? And it's also not solely based on health markers, right? It's also based on your your teleological experience in life, right? Like how much joy do you get from every single day? You know, so there's, there's those pieces that we can't account for. Um, so that's kind of the, the first way I view it from the, what can the science tell us and, and how do we think about it? You know, the second piece of what can we extrapolate to is some of the data suggests that, you know, periods of fasting may have health benefits in terms of processes like autophagy, processes like um, overall signaling in terms of cells and things like that, that might increase longevity. Um, those are things that are hinted at, but we don't really know. Um, and the other thing is we don't know the magnitude of those signals. How do those actually translate long-term? Uh, the other way that I think about it, you know, is hedging your benefits or, or hedging your bets and, you know, pros versus cons is, you know, the way I look at it is, if some sort of intermittent fasting provides you a 5% benefit over the long period of your life, how does that translate into how much does it change your current life and how much does it change the way you approach things now, right? If you're somebody who's a hard charging athlete who trains twice a day, is that long-term 5% benefit going to help you if it's going to impact your ability to perform now, mm -hmm. win the gold medal you're chasing, you know, perform well in the race, those pieces. So it's, it's very much a, how much does the potential pro outweigh the, the known cons um, of what's going on with that piece. So those are kind of the ways I think about it. Um, the other aspect is probably the, let's take all the potential benefits out of it. You know, let's say there's, there's no benefit on longevity. There's no benefit on health. It's just, it's just another way of eating is for you. Is it an effective tool? Um, totally. And if it is, great right yeah. so it's kind of like a lot of these different pieces is you know compartmentalizing what it does what it can do and how can you use it yeah that makes a lot of sense and and ultimately i mean one of the you know i think with the most important way as far as we understand it or that i think about it is for a lot of people especially people that it resonates with it's just a great way of managing calories on a daily basis it's like hey if i skip an entire meal you know, and you feel fine and maybe you even feel better or it's one less thing to worry about then. Okay, cool. Like if that yeah. helps you be successful, then that's, that's good. Yeah. We'll, you know, we'll tell our clients that when they're going through like a calorie restriction period and we're like, Hey, if it's easy for you to just delay breakfast and mm -hmm. have lunch and dinner, go for it. Right. Yeah. Um, we just, we don't sell them any, you know, magical, uh, <laughs> magical outcomes or, you know, living to 250 years old. If, <laughs> Yeah. If they do that. Yeah. So, so let's segue into, you know, um, one other topic that's obviously really popular right now and can kind of be, I guess, talked about with respect to intermittent fasting, which is ketosis and the ketogenic diet. What is your expert opinion on ketogenic diet benefits, re the reality is it? Yeah. This is probably the, this is probably the topic I've written on and talked about the most. Um, and the cool part has been, you know, this has become a hot topic. And so people have decided to do some fairly focused research on it. So we have quite a bit of, 
you know, data to draw from. And we've learned a lot over the last few years. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. Um, And one of them is when we talk about ketosis in general, there's no benefit on weight loss from a ketogenic state, right? Having higher levels of ketones in your blood does not translate to greater weight loss or fat loss. There's no difference between ketogenic diets and low carb diets for weight loss. There are no differences between ketogenic diets and protein matched any other diet, right? I mean, we've, we've hammered that nail in the scientific literature so much that you kind of have to accept that fact. Um, and we probably don't need to waste a lot more grant dollars yeah. studying that question. We kind of know that. Now, is it an effective tool for weight loss? For some people, it's highly effective. Um, and whether it comes down to they just feel less hunger and they eat less, whether it's just because you've removed a whole food group, you eat less. Um, you know, it's, it's all these different things that can contribute to lower calorie intake for these people. Um, and, and that's fairly well known. You know, some of the issues where it becomes much more problematic um, is the claims that people are making about health claims. Um, and then also the development and usage of exogenous ketones for disease states. And when we talk about the medical application of these diets, they're very well known to treat um, intractable epilepsy. So people who've had every other intervention and nothing's worked, it appears that these diets, especially in pediatric patients, they can have benefit and therapeutic benefit on you know, improving seizures in, in people. Outside of that, the, the scientific literature to support it just doesn't exist, right? So when we start to go into realms like cancer, um, we're really diving into areas where it's not effective. Um, we don't have the data to show it is. We know that cancer is this large, broad term for a collection of neoplastic diseases. Each cancer has its own metabolism, its own genotype, you know, its own tumor microenvironment. Um, and so when we start to see this popularization of these ideas and actually being applied to people fairly rigorously and robustly um, without a lot of critical thinking, it starts to become very problematic, right? Mm -hmm. Because now we have people taking unverified information and starting to try to treat people um, um, with, with these dietary therapies that we don't know work and in many cases may make outcomes worse um, for a lot of reasons. And so, you know, that starts to become a little bit problematic. And then when you layer on top of that, the the financial incentive and the marketing incentive of developing products that are making claims that aren't substantiated, it starts to become a little bit more problematic. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the, the balance of, is there something very interesting about this metabolic shift the body goes through in terms of potential therapy? Absolutely. Does a lot more work need to be done on this in things like cancer where some cancers have very unique metabolic sig- signatures? Absolutely. Do we need to learn more about how it, alters brain metabolism for potential neurodegenerative diseases? Absolutely. Um, Could exogenous ketones have therapeutic benefit in some diseases? It's highly possible. Our reach has really gone too far in terms of what we understand. And so we really need to juxtapose that with, you know, how do we kind of slow down and understand what we're doing before we start really ramping this up? So... In a nutshell, as it pertains to weight loss, it 
might just be yet another way of helping people manage their caloric intake. Yes. You know, and that's, that's the best way to view it is it's, it's a tool in a toolbox um, that can work for people. It is uh, more when we take the diet spectrum, right? It's more on the extreme end um, than other diets. And there are potential side effects to consider that aren't present in other ones. Um, So it's, it's one of those things. Who are you? What is your lifestyle? Is this an appropriate tool? And are the risk benefits aligned with where you want to go? Yeah, totally. No, I'm glad that it's, it's nice to hear that scientific perspective on it. Okay. So with that said, Brad, where can people find out more about you? Oh man, I'm probably the most easily accessible person on the planet. Um, you can find our, you know, our company, eachperform.com. We offer two week free trials. So if people want to just like show up, take a look, um, they can do that. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, I don't use Twitter that much just because I don't really like short conversations. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. it's usually like, you know, you're married. So I'm sure you've done the, you're downstairs and your wife's upstairs and you yell and she can kind of hear what you're saying, but she can't. Totally. That's, that's like, that's what I, uh, align Twitter to. Um, I do a lot of just writing on my own. My website's science driven nutrition. It's, it's completely free. It's more just like when I am sitting on the couch at night and have all these thoughts and my wife doesn't want to listen to me talk about it. I just write it down. Um, yeah. So anywhere you can find me, feel free to email me. I'm pretty, uh, easy to reach and usually try to respond to as many people as I can. It's awesome. Couple, a uh, couple more real quick questions for you. First is, uh, what are one or two resources that you've been learning about nutrition from uh, over the past year? Yeah, you know, probably resources. I mean, obviously, there's the, you know, the National Library of Medicine's great. I mean, that's kind of where all the most current peer-reviewed scientific literature exists. Um, the guys at examine.com do a phenomenal job. Um, they're very unbiased. They try to do the best work that they can. It's an amazing resource. Any supplement you can imagine. Um, whenever new hot papers come out, they 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 do a very thorough job of uh, of vetting them. It's funny. I I write for them occasionally, and the peer review process that goes when I send stuff into them is probably more rigorous than when I send it to a, a journal. Um, so they do a really really good job. And you know, the other one is. And probably from the more real world perspective is, uh, you know, Paul, the guy that I work with is, um, and our whole coaching staff, you know, when we're working with people, we get to have really great conversations of, you know, how do you balance the science of what's going on in this person's, you know, file versus what's going on in their lives? Where does human psychology play in? So having a really good team of people around me has been incredibly helpful because they, they highlight things I never even thought about. Yeah, that's great. All good resources. Uh, last question. And it is, so if you could only eat one, one meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the rest of your life, what would that meal be? Oh man, I feel like I'm on the spot. Cause there's like the totally hedonistic the answer yeah, of, you know, right. like I just want to enjoy this one meal for the rest of my life versus the, what's the healthy answer that a nutrition person should tell you. you can give me both if you want. Um, man, I'm, I'm a big fan of stir fry. Like, it'd be really hard for me to ever get sick of having a really good stir fry. Cool. You know, like okay. just like a, some chicken, veggies, a good sauce, some rice, and I'm good to go. Fair enough. Like it, man. Sounds good. 
Brad, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's really been a pleasure having you on the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show. And I encourage everyone listening to go check out all Brad's work, not only his articles, but uh, the other interviews he's done. Um, and like you said, you're all over the place. And so make sure you guys check him out. He's obviously the real deal. Brad, appreciate it, my man. Uh, we'll have Absolutely. I, uh, this was awesome. I appreciate it. Anytime you want to have me back, I'm more than happy to. And any questions people have, feel free to contact me. I will do the best I can to get back to you guys. Awesome. You take care, brother. Have a great day. All right. See you. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode with Dr. Brad Dieter. If you want to find any of the resources mentioned in this episode, you can find those links over in the show notes at bslnutrition.com forward slash episode five zero. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes so that we can help more people make Smart Nutrition Simple. As always, thank you so much for tuning in to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show. We are 50 episodes deep. It's been just over a year since I've been doing these podcasts and I found so much Oh, it's just been a it's just been a fun ride for me. It's been so much fun interviewing all of these experts, finding out what's working for them, what's not working for them, and being able to hopefully offer just immense value to you, hopefully offering insights into nutrition and weight loss and fitness and supplementation and what's working uh, and kind of just hearing it from the experts is what are they doing in their business that's working well cutting through all the bs that's on the internet so you don't have to do the work and, and and sort of try and extrapolate what is real what's bogus because there's so much bogus stuff out there and i'm just trying to bring you the real world stuff that actually works and so i hope you can realize that i hope you again i hope you have found value in it and uh assuming you have then maybe you'd be willing to share this with just one person that you think it could resonate with. Uh, with that said, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. The I can guarantee that the next 50 episodes are going to be absolutely mind-blowing. And uh, hey, if you have a second, leave us a positive review in iTunes. I'd be so appreciative, as I am appreciative, that you've taken the time to tune in. And whether this is your first episode or your 50th episode... I hope you can join me for another 50. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and I will catch you next week. This episode was brought to you by BSL Nutrition and the Complete Essentials All-in-One Training Drink. If you've been looking for a comprehensive workout supplement that can help support great energy both in and around your workouts as well as reduce muscle soreness naturally without all the caffeine and artificial sweeteners, then head over to bslnutritionshop.com and type in podcast at checkout for 15% off your first purchase of either grape and or lemon lime.